I'm Kim, and welcome to Esoteric's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of March 2017. Join us as we go deep inside master architect Paul R. Williams' Seaview Tract Home Development in Rancho Palos Verdes. Architect and historian Alan Hess and resident historians Price Morgan and Larry Paul share insights into the tract's development and style, topographical quirks, and how preservationists are taking a stand to maintain this mid-century modern time capsule. So stay tuned. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between South Pass and Highland Park, Grand Central Mark. It is divine. You can't eat the sunshine, but it's a gold mine. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the month of March 2017. This episode, we have interviews just about Seaview, which is a Paul Williams housing development from the mid-1960s on the Palos Verdes Peninsula. We're going to interview Price Morgan. He is an historian and a Seaview resident. He'll talk about the Seaview development and his work to curate and protect the mid-century modern time capsule in the Palos Verdes Peninsula. We'll also speak in the same interview, or second interview, with Alan Hess and Larry Paul. Alan is an architect and historian who will give us the context for architect Paul Williams' planned community, the Seaview. And Larry, who is a Seaview homeowner and historian, will talk about the challenges he's faced to preserve the architectural integrity of his home and his community. So it's going to be absolutely fantastic. I cannot wait. And Kim, as the Pishka Maven, please, the tip jar. Indeed, I am the Pishka Maven. And that means if you dig the podcast and you'd like to be supportive of what we do, it's never obligatory, but always appreciated if you go to our tip jar page and throw a little something in there. It will provide things like gasoline, chili relleno burritos, cups of tea, nice things out on the road. You could even pay for parking at an archive. Why not? If you're so inclined, we would be grateful. Thanks for listening. Okay, great. Thanks, Kim. So let's let's get to the closely watched train section, which precedes the interviews. So, Kim, um, the Hotel Californian doesn't exist anymore at the corner of 6th and Bonnie Bray, but the Paseo at Californian, a low-income, a affordable-income family housing development, does and the former neon sign from the Hotel Californian is now on it. So, go. It's just the most extraordinary thing. The, the Hotel Californian was one of these fantastic structures on um, Old MacArthur Park, Westlake Park, and these things, these buildings sort of fell into disrepair over many decades, and the Californian suffered a lot because it had a 
slumlord owning it, and by the end of its days, there were a lot of people camping out in it, there were multiple arson fires, it simply could not survive. And so the building um, was demolished in the 1990s, and yet the roof sign, which is one of the largest and most spectacular neon scripts, and there are actually two of them, uh, one facing downtown, one facing the lake, were saved by the city. And there was a hope that um, eventually, when something else was built on the site, the signs would be saved, which was a really visionary thing to do. Uh, the signs were moved. You, you may have seen them if you're a longtime Angelino. They were sort of tucked behind the Mulholland Fountain over by Griffith Park in Los Feliz. And they were behind a fence, and they were rusting, and people would hop over and write on them and dance on them and... and menaced them in various ways. And uh, then uh, they disappeared. <laughs> Actually, one disappeared and then the other disappeared. And there were, it was, no one really knew what had happened. There was no sign put up. Uh, what seems to have happened, though, is somehow a preservationist Diane Keaton obtained one, unclear how or why. And the other, which was the one that was in the worst possible condition, when this low-income housing project finally got the green light, it got moved to a studio where it was, yes, restored by our friend Paul Greenstein, among others. And it's just one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen. And if you see photos of what it used to look like, it is a miracle that this thing is back on top of a building that's pretty much as tall as the old Californian used to be. And uh, it actually went up in May of uh, last year, we had the opportunity to get up on the roof and take some pictures, but it wasn't wired. There was no permit for the sign quite at that time. Now there is a permit, and with the fact that there was a permit, Richard, I think you, you, um, you played pest a little bit, didn't you? Mm -hmm. You did. You, you kind of reminded everyone, hey, we never got a chance to switch that sign on and, and talk about how great it was. So there was an event held uh, in the community room of the Paseo the Californian, which, by the way, is a really handsome Spanish-style um, apartment building. It's, it's just the most charming thing, and uh, I'm glad that an effort was made to, to go with a more traditional style because, of course, you put a 1920s neon sign on top of something like that, and you've got something really special, something spectacular. Thank you, Kim. Fantastic. And just, just in passing, the, the Paseo at Californian is an important project because... This was a project that was very much in mid-flight in terms of financing when the CRAs were dissolved in uh, February of 2012. So several agencies which are, have continued to work together since the dissolution of the CRA came together to get the financing locked down for this project and get it to done. And just so that's, that's interesting. Okay, Kim, what, what did I forget? I, I should just mention that it, it was quite an interesting presentation about how this project happened and how the sign was saved. A little under an hour in length, I videotaped it. You can find it on the Esoteric YouTube channel. And uh, if you happen to find yourself at 6th and Bonnie Bray sometime after 7 in the evening and before 1 in the morning, look up. You'll see something fantastic. Thanks, Kim. So so take a sip of water cuz you're going to you're going to need it mm. so you know we couldn't we couldn't record last week cuz you had a sore throat but you're better now okay kim um what happened 2 weeks ago you want to talk about closely watched funiculars huh y yes kim i do well, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, and I sound like Wolfman Jack, you, you probably know we're completely enamored of 
Angel's Flight Railway, that wee little funicular survivor of old Bunker Hill, which is still there on Hill Street, and has been out of commission for several years. We, um, you know, we watched it sit and worried about it after it was taken offline, and eventually, after talking to a lot of people, including John Welburn, who was the longtime keeper of Angel's Flight, we decided that the thing to do was to actually petition the mayor of Los Angeles and ask for some help. And asking the mayor for help for a city landmark is kind of a no-brainer, except in the case of Angel's Flight Railway, it's a privately owned conveyance. So asking the mayor to get involved was asking for city resources to be expended on a privately owned object, a a landmark to be sure, um, Historic Cultural Monument Number 4, one of our first. But the petition, it was extraordinary. I mean, in the first day that it was online, in the first few hours, a thousand people signed it, and that was all social sharing. Everybody, you know, people didn't even have to think about it. They're like, oh, the mayor could help Angel's Flight? Yeah, I'm signing that. And the mayor did get involved. It's taken a while. It's been, uh, everybody's been wondering what's going on and worried, of course, but while all this wondering and worrying was going on, a lot of work was going on behind the scenes, and so... There at the beginning of March, there was this rather um, unexpected announcement, announced with with rather short notice. We were able to get the word out so that people could be there, but we were waiting until the last minute to be able to tell them when that was going to be. And the announcement was about, um, they call it a public-private partnership, but it's it's really a private-private partnership with some public <laughs> assistance to make it happen. The, the city helped bring in new partners to get Angel's Flight up and running again with the funding that it's going to need to build this trackside walkway that the California Public Utilities Commission requires. And um, I'd like to take credit for this, but at the same time, our petition asked for something a little different. We asked for the mayor to see if the Public Utilities Commission would perhaps release Angel's Flight from its control. And, Richard? Well, Kim, you, 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 you saved Angel's Flight, okay? You just you were the person there all the time pestering them, so it's really good. Um, it's not a public-private partnership, but they're calling it that because, because the people, the entities, the corporations involved in this salvation deal obviously want to step up to the plate and be involved in public-private partnerships for infrastructure, transportation projects with the City of Los Angeles and, and the MTA. So this this is a great way for everyone just to... Proof of concept is falling out of bed in the context of building new infrastructure. This is falling out of bed. So, so they're touting it as public-private because... Phil Washington, head of the MTA, is all about public-private partnerships now, and for better or for worse. And so we're just so grateful. And I spoke with a number of relatives of peop- of owners of Angel's Flight over the decades, the morning of the event, and it was just really great. It's just it's just really great that this has been forged and signed and is moving forward, and we'll keep you posted. And just a couple of thank yous, um, obviously, to the several thousand people who signed the petition, to the many people within the mayor's office and other agencies that worked hard to make this happen, to the new private partners, and to the makers of the film La La Land, who um, really promoted the notion of Angel's Flight as a really great place to steal a kiss, and to the jerk who climbed up onto Angel's Flight and covered it with graffiti. 
was one yeah. of the worst things I've ever seen yeah. in my life. But boy, did, boy, did that, that get people. <laughs> everyone was like, uh-oh, we really have to take care of Angel's Flight. So, hey, Jerko, if you're listening, oh, gosh, you know, you actually did a good thing. You're such a jerk. Thanks, Kim. Okay, um, I want to get on to the interviews. I, I want to get to the events. Um, mm. So I guess the way we start this year talking about events is that this is our 10th anniversary. Happy anniversary, darling. Great, thanks, Kim. It's true. Uh, Esoturic began in earnest in May of 2007, and so as we're uh, enjoying this 2017 10th anniversary year, we just want to have a lot of special tours, things that are a little off the beaten path or a lot off the beaten path, so that we can celebrate by going places we don't normally go. So we've been packing the schedule with unexpected tours. Our first um, 10th anniversary tour was a Symbionese Liberation Army Bus Adventure with Brad Schreiber, the author. It was sold out, which was terrific. Um, we have coming up April the 8th, this Palace of Verde's Ancient and Modern Tour, which is going to take us to Sea View, and you'll meet some of these terrific people you're going to hear from. We also have the um, Desert Visionaries Tour, which will include, that's in June, will include a stop out at Llano del Rio, and we'll be going to Aldous Huxley's Rancho, Ranchito, and many other exciting places. We have the Tom Waits Tour coming up in June. There are many other exciting things happening. We have some lectures. We're going to be talking at the LA Breakfast Club at the end of this month. So just a lot of special things are happening because... You know, 10th anniversaries are kind of a big deal. We're not, we're not here to celebrate our centennial like Grand Central Market, but 10 years of giving bus tours about, around L.A., I think that's worth making a little bit of noise about. I, I, I agree with you, Kim. Can you hand me that pencil or pen there so I can add that? Thanks. Mm-hmm. It's just a little treat for everyone listening to hear that meta metadata. Okay, so, um, Kim, let's talk about some immediate upcoming events. Palos Verde's Ancient and Modern Tour. Okay, the focus of this podcast is the Seaview development tract by Paul Williams, mid-1960s. This bus tour is going to feature the very people talking in this podcast for a tremendous 45-minute walkthrough of the Seaview neighborhood, right? That's right, and... Miraculously, this tour is filling up, but it's not full. So if you're within the sound of what, my voice... What do, you, what do you mean, miraculously? Oh, well, I mean, if... You didn't think this was... This, you, you were incredulous about this tour, I think. You know what it was. No, I don't. It's that we did a Palace Verde's birthday bus for you. So we've, we've been to Palace Verde's before, and I thought, do our friends want to go and do different things in Palace Verde's? Well, maybe they do, but we'll find out, but... Sales are good. My point is, miraculously for you, gentle listener, it's not too late to get a ticket. So why don't you, if you enjoy this podcast and find it interesting and like the idea of actually going and exploring Seaview and being able to ask some questions on the ground and enjoy that salt sea air and see what it's all about, pick up a ticket. We'd love to see you on the bus. Thank you, Kim. So um, let's see. In order, I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, at the this, So that's April 8th, which is in a few weeks. Immediately, this coming Sunday, is our Lava Salon about Parker Center. Oh. Yeah, my birthday present this year was the Planning and Land Use Management uh, Committee of the Los Angeles City Council having the most disgraceful conversation that has ever occurred under that dome of City Hall. I guess it's more of a cone. I mean, the notion that you could talk about a building like Welton Beckett's Parker Center, 
1955. One of the most important modernist buildings in the city, certainly the finest modernist building owned by the city of Los Angeles. And talk about it as if it were somehow guilty of the moral shame of the activities of the Los Angeles Police Department under Chief Parker and subsequent chiefs, that it is somehow responsible for the Los Angeles riots, that it is responsible for the demolitions of one section of the little Tokyo neighborhood and thus must be torn down and the earth salted. The <laughs> hey, did you just not hear me for a second? A cat walked in front of me. A little more metadata than you need, perhaps. It's disgraceful. Uh, Jose Huizar, calling himself a preservationist, put forward this motion to demolish the building and said that it was the right thing to do because of all of these moral failings of Angelinos of decades past. I think we should tear down the new part, the new LAPD. You want to tear down the new LAPD headquarters? Well, I mean, I, I don't. I <laughs> well, they're, they've been shooting a lot of people lately. I mean, the police commission's upset about that. Uh, here's the thing. Just forget for a moment all of these moral I, I, qualms. I, I think we should tear down City Hall. To tear down City Hall? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. yeah let's tear, I, let's, I mean, let, let's tear down the Hall of Justice while we're at it. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Deep state. Deep state. You're cute. Let, let's forget all this moral stuff for a minute. The LA Conservancy brought in their own experts to do an analysis on what the costs would be of doing an adaptive reuse of the building. It, the, the idea is it's essentially an office building. It has a jail attached, but the jail's small. Um, doing an adaptive reuse project of this building and turning it into a functional contemporary office structure that the city can use versus tearing it down and starting from scratch. And the Conservancy's numbers really differ with what the city's coming up with. The Conservancy says it's going to cost $50 million more to tear down as opposed to adaptively reuse the building, possibly even more than $50 million. With the condition of the city budget where it is, if that is the case, we cannot afford this. And this question needs to be asked very, very seriously. And yet, with no debate about that at all, Plum put forward this motion, Wizar put it forward, it passed, it went to full city council, and they want to tear Parker Center down. So, at the end of the month, it's, it's not gone yet, let's have a Lava Sunday salon and talk about Welton Beckett as an architect, who, contrary to Jose Wizar's assertion on my birthday, um, this is actually one of his better buildings. It's a very important building. It's a modern police building of... Absolute uniqueness and beauty with integrated landscaping and art. But Wizar said this is actually, uh, many experts think it's not one of his best buildings. Right. Well, so, I don't know any experts who think that. So come see the experts, hear what they think. We'll do a presentation at in the lower level of Grand Central Market. Then we'll walk over to Parker Center. I don't think we're getting in, kids, but we'll go and take a look at the rather remarkable exterior and all that remains. Thanks, Kim. I think that this is a really good example of that, you know, Government is such a problematic endeavor. The bureaucracies of government really are truly problematic and against, really don't exist to help people, even though they are. Um, this is a good example of city council really, really showing what municipal elected officials are, which are incredibly ambitious, mediocre people who were given the opportunity to talk about art and culture and really show their complete lack and grasp of aesthetics, history, or anything that one would call culture. And, and, they, and they cloud this, they, they, they use this as this facade to just make this really blatantly political decision, which is 
theirs to make because they're they're in charge. They allocate the resources. Correct. And and I would observe as well that Jose Wizar previously, while calling himself a preservationist, called for the demolition of the Sixth Street Bridge, which everyone acknowledges had concrete cancer and needed to go. But he said that he was convinced that it wasn't important to rebuild the bridge in its iconic existing design, which was considered the most beautiful of all of the landmark bridges crossing the Los Angeles River. So we're getting this modernist noodle, which nobody likes, instead of a recreation of a bridge which was much beloved. So these are bad decisions that are being made, and they are bad aesthetic decisions. The people who are knowledgeable and are charged with making these decisions, like the the Cultural Cultural Heritage Heritage Commission, well, the CHC actually had a recommendation for Parker Center. They have actively advocated its adaptive reuse to the point of even writing um, op-eds for the Times. A commissioner wrote an op-ed saying this was appropriate. So if the people who are experts who volunteer their time for the city to actually give a recommendation are going to be ignored, why do we have a Cultural Heritage Commission? Why don't we just put City Hall in charge of everything? Oh, then they'd have to do a lot of work. Hmm. Yeah. It would would be too expensive, but we won't get into that. Um, Kim, um, we've got a crime lab coming up at the end of April. With um, with our good friend Brad Schreiber and Professor Johnson, the host of the event, had uh, the director of the criminalistics department at Cal State Los Angeles. Oh, you mean Brad Schreiber, who did that sold-out Symbionese Liberation Army bus tour for our tenth anniversary? That Brad Schreiber, the the, the Brad Schreiber who that SLA buster was so great because he really didn't know. Like, he didn't understand what getting on the bus was and being the guest host. And, like, he was really excited and he was ready. And he he hit all the marks leading up to the bus tour. And and I I just, I can't wait to do it again with him and continue to work with him. But, like, he didn't get it. And it was just, like, one of these great moments in my life where you just watch his face as he's talking nonstop for four and a half hours. And he realizes (laughs) that the people who get on the Esoteric bus are, like, the best audience in the world for offbeat L.A. history, and they really are. We're so grateful to have our gentle riders. So so he's giving a crime lab. Yeah, he is, and it's going to be based on um, one of his earlier books, which is about the history of the Los Angeles coroner's office and some really interesting celebrity death cases and some weird ones. So that'll be a lot of fun. You'll see some photos you may not have seen before. And then um, we're doing, a, with, with Professor Johnson, sort of an intro yeah. to crime scene investigation. So and he is always we're, just... We're going back to our roots yes. with him. He's, I mean, he hasn't talked in years, it seems, and we really need him to just roll up his sleeves and, you know, talk about at what point in your career you start testing the knife wounds for semen. Oh, your favorite thing to say. And these these events, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> these events are at Cal State Los Angeles. We do them four times a year. They're fundraisers for the Criminalistics Graduate Department. So when you buy a ticket, you're helping to buy things like DNA kits as they use them to break cutting-edge technology for um, stories, that, uh, you know, analyses that they're writing for academic journals, new types of crime scene testing, things that are actually going to end up in the courtroom in 15, 20 years. So come and participate in that. It's always a really fun afternoon. And one one last event, I want you to plug the April Lava Salon, which is the weekend after Brad's uh, Forensic Science Seminar, the, the Fort Moore Memorial, because I'm super excited about that. Only if you let me also talk about the Tom Waits tour. Yeah, in, yes, you can. And and it's in the, the, the wrap-up, too. Oh, okay. So I thought we'd just do Lava. Your call. 
But yes, it's in the wrap-up. Well, well, I mentioned it. June 3rd, once a year, tour of Tom Waits LA with my longtime collaborator, David Smay. So if you're a Tom Waits fan, buy a ticket, pass it on. It's not the kind of thing we usually do, so we definitely need some help amplifying the message. It's a tour about Tom Waits. Come on, Hollywood and downtown, we'll see you on the bus. Now, as for this Fort Moore business, um, obviously, if you've spent any time on the backside of Chinatown, you've noticed this mid-century modern memorial fountain that talks about Fort Moore and pioneers and battles and things that are a little obscure that has been rotting and getting tagged, and the, and the mosaic pieces have been falling off, and the water got turned off, and the tree died, and just everything about it was awful. And the county decided to develop one of their parking lots, and now suddenly it is right smack dab in the sight line of something they're very proud of. So the money is here. They're going to restore this fantastic Fort Moore Memorial. And you, Richard, are organizing a pretty special event at the end of April to get us up there. Yeah, we're, we're going to have the, uh, the, the L.A. County Arts Commission person, Claire Haggerty, who's in charge of the restoration project, and the conservator, Donna Williams, who's a good friend of Bill Ellinger. Huh. Uh, they're going to... So, what is what's going to happen? So, we're going to meet in the basement, I'm sorry, the lower level of Grand Central. L-L. Lower level. We're going to... Nathan and I are going to give a quick history of the hill. Quickly talk about the Mormon battalions and battlements, but really the heavy lifting will be on uh, Victorian residences on Fort Moore. Uh, the Harry Chandler's house. Hmm. Um, the, Old the, Harry Chandler, the original Harry Chandler. The, the man for whom our friend Harry Chandler is named, yes. The man, the man for whom Otis Chandler's son is named, his uh, grandfather, right. yes. Um, his grandfather, yes. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be great. We're going to talk about these old, old Fort Moore, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get Claire and Donna to come up and just talk about what it is they want to do, and then we're going to walk over and roll up our sleeves and just get into the the nitty-gritty of the restoration of this amazing piece of public art. And we're getting, like, onto the site, so it's going to be up close and personal, very special. You definitely want to RSVP for this one. These events are free, by the way, just free with RSVP. And uh, as long as it's not the holiday season, you'll find us the last Sunday of the month at 2 o'clock in the lower level of Grand Central Market putting on uh, one of these cultural talks with a walk to follow. Alpha Sunday Salon. Great. Okay, we did it, Kim. We can now get to the interviews at last. So Price Morgan is our first interview, so I'm going to introduce him last. And I will introduce first right now Alan Hess and Larry Paul. Okay, Al- so so I'm interviewing, I interviewed Alan and Larry together because we were at the kitchen table and they were there and like, what else? You just go, go with it. You know, it, it works really well. So, Alan Hess, Larry Paul, okay. Alan Hess, architect and historian, wrote, has written books, uh, Googie, Googie Redux, right? He's the mid-century modern guy. He's great. He, uh, we, we, we adore him. It's so great to work with him. He's our Pereira partner, he's, Pereira he, and Peril partner. Yeah, he, he's our Pereira person, yes. I guess we're Pereira people, too. He's our Pereira partner. Um, he's going to talk. He's going to do... So we're going to bring him, he comes in at the beginning of the interview and sort of the end of the interview and gives context to Paul Williams' work in general so we can jump into Seaview. Larry Paul is a homeowner and a historian of, of, of a Seaview tract house. Well, Larry, like Price, grew up in this home yeah. and has got the bug big time. Yeah. So, so Larry, 
Larry's so amazing. I, I love Larry. <laughs> I'm just so happy. We're fr- Le- there's no one like Larry. And I, that's it. Um, he's a force of nature. And you're going to get just a snippet, just a snapshot of this, this, this raw force coming out of him. Let me put it this way. Paul R. Williams is up there somewhere looking down and going, dang, I didn't think anybody would love my development as much as Larry Paul loves my development, but it's really great. So, so Alan and Larry are going to be the, the second interview, and they're just going to, it's going to be great. The first interview is with Price Morgan. Price is also a resident. Um, his parents own the house. It's, Price is a very young person. Yes. Yeah, just about to say, Price, Price, you know, grew up in the house. Price, Price is just getting ready to to get to get to college and everything like this, and so he's very young. He's making a documentary. He's been working on this documentary for about five years, I think. Um, he's definitely he's been, a little embarrassed. His voice was kind of changed in the earlier interviews that he did. I mean, it, that, that's how young he is. Okay, Price is amazing. I'm, if 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 I didn't say that immediately. I apologize. Price is, is a complete genius. We're here to foster his preservation goals and hopefully go and study with our friend Olivia Banner uh, out in Texas. I hope. And so um, he just okay. So he's just going to talk about his passions for Sea View, which start you know around the time he learns to read, which I think was like four or five. <laughs> so <laughs> that's late. Come on. Is that late? That's okay, really late. late man. Okay. Price is very gifted. Um, he's been obsessed with Seaview since he was very, very young, and and we ho- are hopeful that a book is in the works too. So I just, this is just nothing but Seaview, and let's take it away with our interview with Price. My name is Price Morgan. I'm in Seaview Palace Verdes, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Price, Price, I'm here with you. I need you to properly introduce yourself and tell us what beautiful neighborhood we are standing in. Well, absolutely. My name is Price Morgan, and I've lived here in the Seaview neighborhood of Rancho Palace Verdes for, wow, since I was uh, one year old, so now it's about 19 years and, uh, and counting. This neighborhood here was designed by Paul R. Williams in about 1959, and if you don't know who Paul R. Williams is, give him a look up. He's a, he's a pretty cool guy. He was born in the, uh, in the late 1890s, and this guy was, he was black in an era when all architects were white. And, and instead of, of you know, being a victim and, and sort of consigning himself to the status of, of second best, he committed to proving to himself that he was he was worthwhile in the profession and that he could be a professional architect as well. So he, he climbed his way up through the ranks, lots of setbacks, but he kept persevering. He even learned how to draw upside down so his white clients wouldn't feel uncomfortable with him sitting on the same side of the desk and so he could, he could, he could impress them with this skill. He, 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 he is, I, 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 oh my God, that, are you serious? I'm serious. Read his essay, I Am a Negro. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, he, he had tons of little tricks. At one point, there was a guy who came and asked him to design a house, and, and he realized he was black, and he said, no, I'm, I'm not sure. And he said, William says, just, just give me 24 hours. I'll give you all your plans for the house. So he stayed up for 24 hours, and he designed the entire house in a day and gave it back to the guy 4 p.m. the next day. This is a guy who had so much you know, personal drive and, and individualism in his, in, his, uh, in his philosophy that... 
enabled him to to be great. And so he designed homes for for Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz, Frank Sinatra, Burt Lahr, Cary Grant. He collaborated on the the LAX theme building. He's he has quite a portfolio, and C.B. Uh, Palace Verdes is part of that portfolio. Pueblo del Rio housing project, How which he did with Richard Neutra in 1941. Exactly. Yeah. Williams was definitely involved in a lot of collaborations over the years. You know, obviously, one of them is Pueblo del Rio by, by Richard Neutra, which is located near Vernon, California. It's in Vernon, or near it's, Vernon? It's, it's contiguous to Vernon. Contiguous to Vernon, California. Yeah, and th- That was done in a style that's not unlike a lot of the homes in Seaview, yeah. with flat roofs, uh, flat sides, you know, very minimalist in in the styling, concrete block construction, which is, uh, you know, concrete blocks are, are a huge part of Seaview, obviously. Uh, but he, he designed for the rich and for the poor, for, for the public and for the private, uh, every architectural style imaginable. This was a very flexible man. Okay, good. So tell us about this development. Let's start with the year development starts, and then let's get into all the different pl- plans and permutations. Okay, so we're let's bring us back to like 1959, right? So we have this neighborhood here, and oh, we're actually... Oh, 1959, you have to tell us where Rancho Palace Faraday's is. Well, let me right? tell you about this. So here, here we have a, a neighborhood or, or a city that's fairly close to Los Angeles. Like, if I leave this house where we're recording this right now, I can be in L.A. in half an hour if the traffic is good. But at the same time, it feels like it's a world away. We're, we're sitting on the opposite side of the Palos Verdes Hill, so we're facing toward the Pacific Ocean, and there's no noise, no pollution. In fact, the original tracked advertisement showed a map that had the the air pollution smog map where the wind trails would bring the uh, would bring the the smog, and it does not pass save you. So you you can have you couldn't have cleaner air. You rarely hear an airplane. You 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 don't see the ships. Uh, it's just tranquil, nice area. And so this is 1959. We're sitting here next to the Portuguese Ben landslide, right. which was triggered in 1956, causing you know an entire neighborhood of Portuguese Ben to be destroyed. Houses were were put up on blocks. Houses were demolished. Anything they could do to keep this neighborhood in uh, in livable condition. Over here is is Seaview, which is right next door to that neighborhood. And Seaview actually survived with very little damage, but it was very difficult to sell. So they built one quarter of the development, and they called it Marina Highland in about 1957. Uh, it was not designed by Williams. And uh, and the Marina Highland sold poorly. And then when they designed, uh, when they built the, the next segment of the neighborhood, which is 190 homes designed by Williams, you have you know very few buyers. So the homes were sold from 1959 all the way through 1962. Lower rates. Uh, original owners were moving in, and they found the homes infested with ants, covered with, uh, you know, covered with weeds. But uh, but CV rebounded rebounded in a big way, and now the home values are are exponentially higher than they were in 1960. Okay, I, I believe that. Uh, let's go through some of the plans and permutations and the motivations behind them. Right. So you're looking here at nine basic floor plans plus the the opposite versions of those floor plans flipped, if you will. Right. So. Right off the bat, we have 18, uh, 18 floor plans you can choose from if you are a first-time buyer in Seaview. Uh, not only that, but there are 41 uh, different elevations available, which are you know versions of the same floor plan with different stylings, right? So you have 82 effective homes you can purchase in Seaview. Every one of them has different Formica patterns in, in various very colorful uh, uh, patterns. You have... Very colorful plumbing fixtures in blues and pinks and greens. 
everything's very colorful. You have rubber tile flooring. You have custom light fixtures in space-age styles that look like rocket engines from the Feldman Lighting Company, which designed for Beverly Hills Hotel, I believe, and, and many other uh, very fancy <laughs> areas of town. Uh, you, you have many different styles of these floor plans. So as I said, there's 82. You have flat roofs. You have shed roofs. You have pitch roofs. You have Polynesian-style homes and giant nine-foot walls of breeze block. Palos Verde Stone featured yeah. very heavily, which is also a big favorite of Williams in uh, in Frank Sinatra home, Lucille yes. Ball, Desi Arnaz home. Uh, one of the coolest features of my home, I think, is actually the Shoji screens, which slide out from a hidden compartment behind the fireplace. So in one second, you can turn the fireplace, or sorry, the living room and the dining room into two separate rooms, or you can make them just one contiguous room. Uh, using the, the floor-to-ceiling shoji screens that were designed by Williams. You also have very large room dividers, uh, which are made of, of you know, latticework and wood that were designed by Williams, that sometimes stretch as much as about 20 feet in a room in Seaview. My personal one is, is 4 feet by 9 feet, and it's a, it's a very colorful space-age pattern. These homes are very colorful. They were they were There was a, actually a, a schedule of, of home colors in Seaview, so you, you had to purchase a home in yellow, or you had to purchase one in charcoal gray, or one in green, or one in peach. Mine was originally peach. I love it. Okay, let's get to now, the here and now. Let's get to... How many of these original homes are intact as you walk through this development, which is about 190 homes? Right, so you have about 190 homes of Williams and Seaview. Of those, I would estimate about 75%, or no, no, I would, I would say about 33%. Right. About, about 75. About eight. 75 homes, yeah. So, so about, about you know, one-third of the original homes, or of the homes that were designed by Williams, still retain their original Williams characteristics. We have some pretty scary remodels in Seaview. Yeah, we're not going to talk about the remodels. We're not no, talking no. about the remodels, yeah. <laughs> the, the, you, you, you look at these homes and... and they're they're not something you wanna you wanna run into in a dark alley. Let's just put it that way. Time travel, right? Time travel is something we sort of like to throw around. The notion of you're walking down this block and and you don't know what's what what decade it is. So take us take us in in your mind's eye. We're standing in front of your folks' house, which is totally brilliant. But uh, take us take us in your mind's eye down to that cul-de-sac that we were just about we were standing in front of about 20 minutes ago, and tell us about you know, 1963. So in 1963, let's just take us back to 1963. You're standing on Helm Place in Rancho Palos Verdes, which at the time was called Portuguese Bend. It was not an incorporated city, just Portuguese Bend. This is a lovely little neighborhood, very colorful. The homes almost all retain their very colorful pastels in, in various shades. There's uh, you know, little trees have been planted by the city. And uh, everybody drives like a little little sports car. You know, the, at least the, the promotional literature for CV, you know, showed a very idyllic home with George Nelson bubble lamps, sailboats across the shimmering Pacific, all the way to Catalina Island, 22 miles across the sea. Um, the average homeowner in CV is a World War II vet. The, the homes were almost were very predominantly sold to, to people who were buying them on their GI Bill because right. they, were, they were sold, obviously, at, at a you know, reasonable discount to, to, to vets. And, and these guys are engineers. They're so engineers. For the most part, yeah. A huge amount of these people are either military people or they're aircraft designers. Yeah. Now, aircraft, uh, aircraft industry is exploding in the Southland at this point. So you have people who work in L.A., people who work for Downey, McDonnell Douglas. 
everybody's converging on Seaview. People who worked in the war, so so people who were who were colonels. If you go down the street in 1963, almost everybody's a colonel. Colonel Ashby, Colonel Carlton, everyone's a colonel. And uh, and if you read the the newspaper, everybody's referred to as uh, Mister and Colonel Raymond Ashby. There's never a woman's name given at this time. It's uh, all, all, at this time. It's a totally different time. In fact, I spoke to an original owner recently who told me a story of how she was one of only two families on the block who fought the Seaview HOA to allow a black couple to move in. Obviously a very different time, and ironic, because Williams was, was is best known today for being a black architect who fought the discrimination and, and the prejudice of the time to succeed. Black people weren't allowed to move into his houses at the time, and in many cases. Legally it was allowed, but the HOA... Uh, Forbidden it. This this woman who was pregnant at the time was, received a call saying she was going to to get a black baby. She was going to give birth to a black baby, and the her husband was, you know, assaulted in a an HOA meeting. So for all the the idyllic imagery, you had some some issues in Seaview at the time. Okay, well we're, we're that we're at the other side of all of that. I we're want... at the other side exactly, and thankfully I... we actually have a lot of black people in the in the neighborhood now. It's 21st century. I want yeah. you to tell us about what you're doing to preserve the history of this place. So the problem that we're seeing right now in Seaview is that we're seeing a lot of people who move in and they don't appreciate the style. They want to move to Palos Verdes and their vision is they want a castle. Right. Palos Verdes is known for its builder castles. The, the, these homes that were designed you know, haphazardly and have every ridiculous luxury imaginable. They, they don't want to move in and move into a 1960 ranch house. So what they do is they remove all the original Williams touches that made the home special, and they cover it over with flat stucco and, and crazy stonework or brickwork and, and change it to something that it's not meant to be, something that wouldn't have made Williams happy. And Williams was very open to remodels. He said that, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said that, you know, the, the best home is a home that's, that fits the family that lives there. Right. So and, he, he, and was, he, was, he was willing to see this, but I don't think a lot of these homes would have, would have made Williams happy. They're not in keeping with the neighborhood. They don't, they're, they're very excessive. Right, but there are some tasteful remodels. There Just are tasteful remodels. Just in our 20-minute walk we took, we saw like four ta- really yeah. good remodels. No, and I'll tell you this. I mean, the, the, the remodels that are bad, they stick out like a sore thumb, but there are tremendous number of remodels that are totally in keeping with the style, that preserve the Williams facade or add something in a tasteful manner and, and keep it, retain the feel of the neighborhood as Williams intended, just that easy breezy 1960 living that, that attracted so many families to, to live in this neighborhood in 1960, 1961, 62. Perfect. So, so what are you doing? You're doing, not, doing? Only, not just your outreach, but you're working on a documentary with Alan Hess. Right. So right now I'm doing a lot of work to preserve Seaview. I'm actually moving out of the area in a few months, and I've been doing research on this neighborhood since I was 14 years old. And I want to get all this research together and put it in one volume and one documentary uh, that I can leave the neighborhood with as my goodbye kiss as I uh, as I leave for Dallas, Texas, and uh, and what I'm doing right now is I'm I'm tracking down original owners, which is quite the sleuthing job. You have to go into the PV News archives, which is actually available online, and I found you know just in the in the gossip column, people's names attached to addresses in the neighborhood. What I do is I take those addresses and the people's names and I plug them into you know any number of of online you know people finder right. sites. And if I'm lucky, I find somebody who's still around. Occasionally, the age will be listed as 117, 
and I'll put calling them later on my list. Or, uh, or they're 85, and they, they live in Huntington Beach. And so I give them a call. I say, hey, I'm, I'm Price. I'm working on this documentary here. I'm calling it The Art of Living, which was a, uh, which was a CV promotional, sl- promotional slogan at the time. And, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to get all this information, all these memories, all this paperwork and photos together to tell the story of Seaview as it was and as it is and as it will be. And I've gotten a tremendous response. People are really excited about oh, this. Yeah. P- people, you, you make their day. They very, pick up the yeah. phone and they hang up the phone and they're very happy. And they hear that they lived in a neighborhood that was designed by Paul R. Williams, which people didn't know this. Yeah. They, they were not aware that they lived in a home that was designed by a person who did work for Lucille Ball and who also did public housing projects. Very flexible guy. And, and the people are really excited to hear that. And I've, I've gotten tons of stories, uh, Photographs. I got over 50 photographs from from the 1960s and 70s. At this point, uh, some guy who's up in Tracy, which is near the Bay Area, he uh, he he says he's got film footage oh from his from his Williams home that he lived in in the 60s and 70s. So this stuff's just pouring in, and I can't wait to see where it goes. Uh, I've I've actually already designed the dust jacket <laughs> for the book because because uh, that's how I roll. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to see where it goes. I think it's, it's going to be a very compelling story, and, and people are going to see this and think, wow, what could I do with my home in Seaview that I'm not doing already? You know? I love it. Uh, Price, it's starting to rain. So yeah, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna wrap it up. I want you it's always to sunny inter- in Seaview. <laughs> what <laughs> what you, are you talking about? Of course I, it's sunny. I want you to tell us your name again and sign off, and we'll, we'll see you at the screening of your documentary. I look forward to that as well. Uh, this is Price Morgan. I have lived in Seaview for my entire uh, life that I've been able to tell anything was going on. And uh, I'm looking forward to produce The Art of Living documentary and book uh, this year on, on the Seaview neighborhood. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Angel Diaz. I'm in the California's Gold Exhibit, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. <laughs> Larry, Alan, I'm here with you. We're in Seaview. We'll explain that in a minute. I rarely interview two people at once. I'm very excited. We're going to quickly just introduce ourselves. So, Larry, just quickly tell us your name. My name is Larry Paul. Perfect. And and you live here in Seaview where we are. That's correct. Hold that thought. Alan, tell us who you are. I'm Alan Hess. I'm an uh, architectural historian, and I'm particularly interested in Paul Williams to design this tract. Perfect. Okay. We've got a, just a rough script to do this. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, Larry, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna let Alan set up Paul Williams, and then we're going to roll up our sleeves. We have a lot of great stuff to get through with you. Let's let Alan quickly tell us who Paul, Paul R. Williams is. Go, Alan. Paul Williams was one of the great Southern California architects uh, throughout the 20th century. Um, He's particularly notable because he was an African-American who had great success uh, as an architect. He became literally nationally known uh, at a time when that was not common for uh, African-American architects. Uh, but it, not beyond his race, he was an excellent architect. He designed large projects. He was one of the uh, collaborators on the, uh, uh, on the LAX. 
He designed the court buildings downtown. He also designed many custom homes for famous Hollywood stars throughout the years. Uh, so he is definitely one of the architects who shaped Southern California in the 20th century. Perfect. This is a great thread we always pick up with you. Okay, Larry, I'm turn to face you. All right, we're going to do a couple of things with you in segments. First of all, you're just going to, you're just going to explain to us what Seaview is. And we'll get to the question of the time capsule later. So just don't worry about the time capsule. Just tell us where we are and what this development is. Seaview is a track that was built in Rancho Palos Verdes. Actually, before it was Rancho Palos Verdes, it was just the unincorporated Palos Verdes Peninsula. And it has a great location, which is not too far off from the Harbor Freeway. And it is also filled with many homes have a great view of Catalina. Perfect. Okay, so I want you, and we just um, we, we talked about this right before we started. I'm just going to throw some ideas out at you, and let's just start to riff. So I'm going to throw a couple ideas out at once, and you can just work through them. Uh, aerospace, baby boomers, new frontiers. So this area was really quite unique, and they, they built this area, and it was developed over a number of years, and there was um, actually... Do I talk about the slide area? Uh, we'll talk about well, a little bit now, but I, I, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that later. So this area was built, and it was really trying to attract people from predominantly the aerospace industry, from everywhere from the LAX corridor all the way down south into the uh, Long Beach Lakewood area of aerospace. It was designed to be far enough away where you feel like you're actually kind of on an island. This is definitely away from Los Angeles, yet you're freeway close uh, to access the, you know, the, the amenities of Southern California. So it's designed to be both convenient and also remote at the same time. Perfect. And now it's time for you to attempt to describe what a typical, what a typical Seaview house is. And we'll get to your family's story in a minute, but just give us give us a snapshot of what we can look what we're, we're thinking about, because then Alan's going to jump in in a second here. Well, the typical Seaview home is uh, actually they ranged in size originally from about uh, sixteen hundred square feet to uh, two thousand uh, twenty nine square feet was the largest one. And they had nine different floor plans, and they had 41 different styles. And they were really designed to uh, invoke that, that era in the late 1960s, or early 1960s, late 1950s, where people were able to just live that modern lifestyle of a clean, uh, a clean environment, a clean uh, place to live, and beautiful community and everything else. So Seaview was this little isolated uh, pocket that was just a, a little respite from the day-to-day uh, -day life in Southern California. Perfect. Okay, Alan, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw the same three phrases at you, but I want you to answer this in the context of Paul Williams as an architect in Los Angeles County, not just here on the peninsula. So, and and we, we do this all the time, like we were just at Harvey's. Right, Harvey's what's now Bob's big boy, and talking about Pereira and modernism and materials. and So let's go. So Paul Williams, as a Los Angeles architect, baby booners, aerospace, new frontiers. How does this, how does this translate into this visionary Los Angeles architect? Well, it's important to realize that Paul Williams started out designing very traditionally 
in his homes and his office buildings that he built. That's the way he was trained, in the old-fashioned way of doing architecture. But living in the 20th century, he becomes aware, obviously, of modernism. And he makes this transition to modern-style homes. Um, he wasn't trained to do that. He developed it pretty much on his own, and being here in Southern California, a time when people were flooding into this area, wanted to live here, wanted to live a modern lifestyle. So his clients wanted to live modern, and in a tract like Seaview, he provides that sort of setting for uh, for those uh, those clients uh, that are that are coming in. Perfect um, ma- materials. Not specifically for Seaview, because we'll let Larry get into that, but just Paul uh, Paul Williams involved with LAX Theme Restaurant. So just this idea of materials and shapes and how that sort of becomes part of this Los Angeles style. Well, the reason I mentioned that he had been trained in a traditional way is because these houses, even though they are modern, have a graciousness that you see in his older style homes, his his southern colonial homes, his Tudor homes, and so forth. But because he was interested in modernism, uh, he began to integrate these you know cleaner shapes, more abstract forms, um, exposed natural materials like uh, like the uh, the Palos Verde stone on the the fireplaces in many of these homes, and just gaining the beauty from the nature of the materials. Uh, this was a modern idea, and Paul Williams uh, really took that and ran. Perfect. Okay, good. We're gonna come back to you. We're gonna we're gonna go to Larry for a couple of minutes, and we'll be right back. So hold, don't don't hold your breath, but just wait. Okay, Larry, your family saga. We're at Seaview. Go. So in the late 1960s, my father had been, uh, or in the mid 1960s, my father had been transferred into Pennsylvania, and he decided after the second particularly harsh winter that he was not going to do another one. So by September of 1969, uh, we actually moved back to Southern California, where we had been, where we had spent, I had spent all my life prior to that, and he had spent uh, the last, uh, you know, 30 years before that. And he, uh, we were looking at different homes, and he really liked Palos Verdes, and we looked at a bunch of different homes, and we walked into this one home on our street, and we walked uh, into the front door. My dad walked through the house, into the backyard, and said, this one. And didn't even know if the house had a bathroom or a kitchen, <laughs> just said, this is the house where we're going to be, and just fell in love with the view and said, this is where we're going to be. So uh, my parents lived here uh, for another 40-some-odd years. I grew up here. I moved away after, you know, after college and, and with my career. Um, and uh, as, as life has uh, its, its turn, my, my parents uh, have both passed away. And the opportunity to, uh, for, for us to do, you know, what, what are we going to do with the home? And the home, unfortunately, had some structural issues due to some additions that were done prior to us moving in uh, back in the 60s. They were all legal and permitted, but kind of questionable in the way that they were put together. And we decided, uh, my wife and I decided that we were going to take an attempt to save this home because everyone else would have just scraped the home and started over. And we did not want to do that. We really wanted to preserve this Paul Williams home. 
Uh, we have a great respect for his style. We are, we are creatures. We, we have been living in a modern home uh, uh, for many years, um, for our, our married life of, over, of 21 years now. Uh, we've been living in a mid-century modern home, uh, but we didn't want to just throw down this house in Palos Verdes. We would be the people to try to save it. So we ended up replacing the entire foundation of the house, which was as crazy as it sounds like it would be. We removed the addition that was put on, but we tried to save the square footage, and we did save the square footage, but in a much more intelligent way. So we actually re uh, we, we sort of channeled our inner Paul R. Williams. We, I have all the blueprints for the neighborhood of the, uh, for this Seaview tract, uh, all the Paul R. Williams homes. And so we use that sort of as a model and a template to really try to feel like how we would connect with Paul R. Williams and how would have he done it if he could have done it today with modern materials or modern stuff, but trying to keep it very much in keeping with the original style. That was really a key point for us was we really wanted to make it compatible. We would really wanted people to walk in and say, oh, what a nice original home. If they didn't know the Seaview Homes, our goal was to have people walk in and go, what a nice original home you have, and not realize that we've completely actually uh, changed the, the floor plan of, our, of what we call the great room now. So we, um, unfortunately, the gorgeous original fireplace was um, uh, leaning and sinking, and there was no way to resurrect it. But we chiseled off all the original PV stone, and we put that aside for later, and we uh, built a replica in a in a different model of a Seaview home, but we took a replica of the shape of the fireplace. We put it in the same visual location, just a little bit further away. That was not in the view, and we really maximized our view. So we, we went with narrow frame... Um, uh, Fleetwood windows that really matched the same style of the original windows. Of course, we did you know crazy things like insulation and, and structural designs that were uh, were, were a, a big improvement over things. But we we really try to keep the the theme and the feel of the house to be very very uh, compatible with the original. So you know we've gone and we we have vintage for micas and we have uh, colored fixtures for our toilets and sinks, and we, we've only with their modern low-flow design, and um, we've really tried to keep it mid-20th century design, mid, mid, so really mid-century design, but mid-21st century with technology and features and comforts and everything else to make it a modern lifestyle of today's world, not just one of 50 years ago. Perfect. Okay, Alan, I'm going to come to you in a minute. I have, I have one more, just a couple questions for you. We're going to, we're going to, and you're, this, is, this is going to be your swan song. You're, we're, we're going to wrap this up with you. Okay, I do want to. I, I, I want to hear what you have to say. Okay. Okay, don't worry. I'm a, we'll, 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 we'll wrap it. But I, let, me, let me ask you some, some questions first, and then we'll, we'll see what we haven't touched on. I want for you to quickly go through the different plans, because you touched on this, but I just made, call out the names. Because I love the names. Well, there's the Lido and the Biscayne and the Monte Carlo and the Bermuda, and they had all these wonderful and uh, wonderful fanciful names. And that was part of the '50s that that era. And when you look at the original sales brochure and you read all the way they're describing the features and the fixtures and his and her lavatories and all the wonderful, uh, you know 
illustrative words, and they invented, actually, a, there was one word that they invented, which I'm blanking on. It was, it, was, it had to do with smog. There was, there was one, uh, they talk about smog-free sea uh, view, but there was one very funny word that they, that they put in there. And it just, it was, it, it was from that era that was in the, the, the pre, uh, during the JFK era, and, and it was the, uh, there was a lot of innocence still, and, you know, the, the Seaview track is a, is a beautiful, isolated pocket, and it really became a time capsule, and part of the reason yeah. that actually attracted Paul R. Williams to this area, there was a track that was being built in the, the Seaview track was being built in the 50s, and there was a landslide that started up again that no one was really aware of, or actually it was geologists were aware of it, but they, there was a dormant landslide that began sliding in the Portuguese bend. And that was right adjacent to Seaview. And Seaview was not in that slide. It's actually very stable. The land is very stable here. But just adjacent to it, there was landslides. And because of that, that slow-moving landslide, they actually put a moratorium and the original bank, the original builder went bankrupt while they were building this tract. So what happened, they, after they realized the Seaview area was not affected by the slide, they wanted to attract a great architect to build this home with a modern era. And that's what they, they did. They contacted Paul R. Williams and they brought him to design these beautiful, all these different facades and different looks and feels. And it really was a great, great uh, opportunity for Paul R. Williams to create this fantastic track in this great area. Okay, we're not done with you, but I, but I want to come back into focus with Alan because I want to keep this balance, so don't worry. So write, write down your thoughts for things you might want to talk about. I'm going to give you my pen. There you go. Okay, okay, Alan. Okay, we're in this time capsule. I want you to tell us how important this neighborhood, which has probably one out of three of the homes are, are original, would you say, Larry? Uh, uh, yeah, I would say for the most part, at least on the exterior facades, one out of three homes is still sporting much of the original fixtures and or the original styles that they originally were built in. Yes. All right, so Alan, how important is this? Uh, Seaview Track is one of the really good examples of how people lived in this period of time and why they lived this way, why they wanted to live in a modern way, in modern style houses, plus the fact that it is by Paul Williams, a major architect. Uh, just uh, this last year, he won the uh, gold medal of the American Institute of Architects, uh, even though he's been dead many years and uh, he is the first African-American to receive that honor. Uh, so he's you know, an estimable uh, architect. But um, I like to think of these, uh, this tract as a, a livable neighborhood. And uh, they're wonderful homes, beautiful views. The modern style of the, the buildings is not the kind of severe Richard Neutra-like modern style that people often think of. This is a more moderate modernism. It has, for example, um, uh, uh, shingled roofs in a kind of Oriental Asian, even almost tiki style. It has uh, decorative concrete block walls uh, with open uh, open spaces for so that the air can flow through. It has simple lines, um, and, and so it is modern. It is new. It is up to date, but uh, it is also extremely livable. And we can't forget that this is part of the heritage of Southern California in this period. 
Okay, and and also you you could while it was up you you could see Marineland of the Pacific. So we we can't we can't interview you in Palisades Peninsula without you mentioning Marineland of the Pacific. Well, yes, and not only Marineland of the Pacific, which is in visual sight of Sea View, which was of course designed by uh, Pereira and Luckman uh, in 1954 um, as a place for the modern family to be entertained, to be educated. It was a theme park, but with an educational purpose. And um, this is all part of the modern lifestyle. And I cannot also forget that we are very near to Lloyd Wright's uh, Wayfarer's Chapel. So you have these two great civic pieces of architecture, and then you have this mass-produced housing tract by Paul Williams right next to it. Put together those pieces, and you see the pieces that were why Southern California was such an important modern city in this period. Fantastic. Okay, we're going we're to come back to you to say goodbye. Larry, are you ready? I am. I want you to take us by the hand and take us down the path and bring us on home. Well, one of the, th- the word I was trying to remember was scanoramic views. They actually have, they, they listed in the brochures, scanoramic views of the, of the ocean side. And, and you, list, you listen to the brochure, the words in the brochure, they have, you know, they, they talk about everything with such detail. Spacious, easy-keeping kitchens with built-in O'Keefe and Merritt ovens with rotisserie and burner top, including automatic top burner, all in color. And they, they go on and on about all the details and they talk about the two-inch and four-inch bat, uh, bat rock wool insulation and the electrical panels and the big 20 by 23 garages, specially designed doors, and all these features. And they, and they talk about them with such incredible um, respect for you know, all these details. And they really, I think, appealed to the people originally moved in this area and the people that live in this area today, and there are some original owners still, that just, they love this kind of, it was the future, it was comfort, it was ease of living, and it was smog-free. And, and there are multiple points where they talk about the beautiful smog-free Catalina Channel and, the, and, and all of this. And it's really interesting. They have a smog map. They show how Palos Verdes is free from smog. And back in 1960, that was a really big deal. And uh, But it's still a fantastic thing today. And it's actually one of the reasons why my parents moved here is they really wanted to be away from the smog. And they knew when I was a kid I had asthma. And being out in smog-free Palos Verdes was, was a great opportunity. But it's really the view and the neighborhood. And we are close to the freeway. So we're able to get to things when we want to be. But we're also far away. And it's like we're on an island of Palos Verdes. It's really it's a great combination of both uh, near and far and comfort and uh, because of the slide area it actually preserved this community they'd never got to to build the large numbers of homes that they would have built if they had the opportunity of building Crenshaw all the way down and right. building everything everything stopped and this became a time capsule and uh, it really I, I think is the best thing that could have happened to the neighborhood, although not to the developers at the time. Uh, but it was for, for the people in this community, I think it's just been an absolute, you know, fantastic experience to be living in this 1950s bubble. Perfect. Is there, is there anything you haven't touched on that you want to just throw out at us, out at us as we sign off? I just think this is 
a just a fantastic place to live with great weather, great views. Uh, we feel very honored and very lucky to be able to to live here. Uh, it is really just a fantastic uh, neighborhood and community, and just to see, you know, to live in original style homes. Uh, many of the original style homes are still preserved, and it's a really neat, uh, neat opportunity. And I, I thank you for letting me talk about it today. Perfect. Good, Alan. You're not. You're, you're, we're not quite done with you. We're going to get up. We're going to walk over to this fireplace here. Okay. Yep. Right, we're standing in front of this beautiful. Palos Verdes Rock fireplace. It's about eight feet. That's nine feet high. Ceilings in this house are nine feet three, nine foot three inches. Alan, tell us about this beautiful Palos Verdes limestone fireplace wall. Again, this is a modern uh, a modern concept using local materials, and they're unpainted. They're really almost just as they're cut out of the ground. No attempt to shape them, polish them at all, but just the rough uh, texture and color as they come out of Mother Earth is what makes this so beautiful. And uh, there are even uh, fossils from you know millennia past embedded in this. So it gives you a sense of the history of this very site as well. So it's a beautiful ornamental focus for for this uh, house. Perfect. All right, you're going to you're going to say goodbye to us and I want you to just close with what you want people to to think about your closing thought on this beautiful development. Well, I wanted to pick up on what Larry was saying about this being kind of like an island out here. And the thing is, Palos Verdes is still kind of an island. It's a little bit off the beaten track for Southern California. And so is Seaview. And uh, we, we, we think a lot about, um, you know, mass-produced tracks like the Eichler Homes or the Alexander Homes by Palmer and Kreisel out in, uh, out in Palm Springs. But there are so many other interesting modern tracks. And this has been preserved uh, a little bit in amber here on the edge of uh, Southern California in the Los Angeles Basin, but it is a gem. It's an important thing, and it is uh, one uh, of, of many such undiscovered treasures that we need to uh, understand and preserve and, most of all, enjoy living in places like this. Perfect. Okay. We're going we're gonna to Thank you. Good job. Larry, say goodbye to us. Leave us with something to think about. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this has been uh, really great to share stories. And this, you know, for us is really mid-20th century design, mid-21st century uh, living. And this is a great way, to, great way to be. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're here in, in Price's house. Price, I interviewed you. You're, you're the first interview on this podcast episode. Uh, so, Price, you and Larry are working on a book. We're thinking. Of, we're thinking about it since in the air. Alan could, Alan could write. Could write the preface. Price, you have a documentary that you're working on about about the tract. So there's a lot of really good stuff here. Everyone listening wants you to make the film, and for you two to figure out how you're going to publish your book. So so I le- I'm going to I'm going to close with that. So Larry, thank you. Alan, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. My name is Anna Pahoshek. I'm here in Orange, California, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine.
And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast this month, You Can't Eat the Sunshine. This month is March 2017. Our guests were, first, Price Morgan, resident and historian of the Seaview Development Track by Paul Williams. He's a, he's a great, great soul, and we love him. And it's just a great interview of his passions for Seaview, which are manifesting themselves in a book and a documentary, we hope. We also spoke with Alan Hess, architect and historian. He is He's the googie guy. And he, no one's better suited to give us the context in which Paul Williams created this mid-century modern time capsule on the Palace Verdes Peninsula than Allen, which he does. And then in the same interview, we just jumped into the world of Larry Paul, who is a resident and historian of Seaview, and is there's no one like Larry. <laughs> no one. No one like Larry, and we're very happy that he and Price have combined forces to produce, we hope, this documentary and book. And so those were, those were our guests this week, and we want to hear from you. So, Kim, tell us about the feedback loop. It's true. We do. We'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at youcan'teatthesunshine at gmail.com, or you can go through the contact link at www.esotoric.com. Uh, of course, you can join us on an Esotoric bus adventure or at a lava event like the Forensic Science Seminars or the walking tours and Sunday salons in the lower level of Grand Central Market. And if you're inclined to give us a review on iTunes, that can help people find the podcast who are interested in things like this. So... Make yourself known. It's always nice to hear from you. Thank you, Kim. So I think, I think we did it. So I think here's your here are your notes. Mm, thank you. Why don't you Why don't you walk us through some upcoming bus tours? And um, I can do that. Tom Waits is on there. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> I love it. Hey, so um, Saturday, March 25th, we're doing Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice, but it's sold out. Uh-oh. Yeah, that's okay. We're doing it again in June, so that's an awfully fun tour where we get to go into some time capsule interiors and talk about serial killers, two of my favorite things. April Fool's Day, March, nope, April the 1st, would be Echo Park Book of the Dead, a neighborhood-based crime tour including some very dark tales and some beautiful sights. We'll stroll down Carroll Avenue, the Victorian Street, and talk about marriages gone awry. We'll visit Sister Amy Semple McPherson's House Museum. We'll talk about the Hillside Strangler and many wonderful other terrible things. Well, I think you already know that on April the 8th, we're doing one of our special 10th anniversary tours, Palace Verde's Ancient and Modern. Um, you may not know that there is an ancient component. Yes, we're going to be talking about a possible um, many thousand, uh, thousands of years ago unknown, mysterious population of non-human entities that perhaps had some sort of farming concern out on the Palace they're, Verde. They're, they're, hum- they're the third root race. They're the Atlanteans. Okay, they're not the same as us. No. 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 <laughs> no. But we're going to go to a really terrific park and talk about this really interesting theory about some unusual landscape features. So, a lot of architecture stuff as well. You can read all about it on the tour page for Palace Verde's Ancient and Modern. April the 15th, it's our most popular crime bus tour, The Real Black Dahlia, the tour that asks not who killed Beth Short, although we do talk about that a little bit, but 
who this 22-year-old drifter was, why we should care who killed her, and why her still-unsolved murder resonates to this day. She was killed in 1947, and she can still make us cry. April the 22nd, it is Haunts of a Dirty Old Man, Charles Bukowski's L.A., a tour about finding the voice within yourself that is great as a 50-year-old postal worker and habitué of the track. It's a rather beautiful tour, which takes us into East Hollywood and downtown and some time capsule interiors that you will enjoy. And at the end of April, the 29th, we'll be doing our Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles tour, talking about Chandler as a young oilman, soaking up all of the sleaze and scandal of 1920s L.A., and then turning that into art in the 1930s and 40s as a mystery novelist and screenwriter. May the 6th, it is Blood and Dumplings, a crime tour of the San Gabriel Valley with some really daffy and bizarro cases, and yes, a dumpling picnic in a garden of concrete sea monsters. May the 13th, it is one of our newer crime bus tours, Hollywood, my hometown. We will take you into Hollywood with an exclamation point and talk about some unusual crimes and local color and... uh, some, some stories that have become more timely than ever in these days of political unrest and Hollywood museums. Weird West Adams, a neighborhood-based crime tour on May the 20th, takes us into one of the earlier suburbs where uh, people got into all kinds of shenanigans. We'll get to walk through Rosedale, now known as Angeles Rosedale, one of the oldest cemeteries in L.A. We'll go and explore some of the beautiful pocket neighborhoods that you may not know are out there. And yes, there are terrible tales to be told. And then, as Richard said, Tom Waits L.A. is a a once-a-year tour. We're doing it on June 3rd this year. And there I'll be with David Smay, who I've written uh, several books with in my former life as a rock and roll writer. And uh, it's always a nice tour to do. You'll also hear what a bad teenager I was and what a bad intern at Zoetrope Studios and what fun I had uh, snaring Tom Waits into giving a private concert to the other interns. And yes, yes, it's true. Hotel Horrors on Main Street Vice is not sold out on June the 10th, so maybe we'll see you on that. <laughs> it just went on the calendar. It just went on the calendar. And then uh, last thing on the calendar, another 10th anniversary tour. It's got a long name, but it's got a lot of special stuff. Desert Visionaries, Llano del Rio, Antelope Valley Indian Museum, and Aldous Huxley's Pear Blossom Ranch, June the 17th. And that's an all-day excursion out to the desert. It's going to be just delightful and mind-expanding. We'd love to see you there. Thank you, Kim. You did it. As always, you brought us home. I appreciate that. I want you to continue to listen, those at home. And I want to remind you... You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between us. Gold mine of fabulous oddities like root hairs, dairy 